The following episode of Under the Pink Triangle was taped in March before the onset of COVID-19 and the horrifying events currently transpiring in the United States surrounding the murder of George Floyd by members of the Minneapolis Police Department. It has been edited from a previous taping. The staff and panelists of Under the Pink Triangle stand in solidarity with the members of the Black people of color in and out of the LGBTQ2 Spirited Plus community. Our hearts are with them in this very difficult time. The unfortunate truth is that people of color within the LGBTQ2 Spirited Plus community suffer more abuse and indignities with less compassion and resources than any other members of our community. Without the strength and perseverance of the LGBTQ2 Spirited Plus people of color, we would not have the rights and freedoms we as a community enjoy today. Their determination and solidarity show us what it's like to live under the pink triangle. Hello and welcome to Under the Pink Triangle. We would like to thank the Silix Nation for welcoming us to their traditional lands. This podcast in no way represents every voice in the LGBTQ2S plus community, and we endeavor to grow in the knowledge to help us respect as many voices as we can. This podcast is also not for everyone. If you are sensitive to topics of race, sexuality, strong language, or strong attitudes, this podcast is not for you. It is intended for audiences over the age of 15 and not for consumption at work. Opinions expressed are of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the show or its creators. However, respecting differing opinions does not include hate speech of any kind. My name is Lee, my pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm a cisgendered gay male of Caucasian descent. And I'm Kyler, I'm a personal trainer, I'm a trans male, I'm going with they today. I'm Keisha, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm a belly dance instructor and also sit as director for In the Name of Love. Hi, my name's Jennifer, I go by she, her, I am a pansexual, I am a clinical counselor and a business owner in the community. And this is what it's like to live under the pink triangle. Growing up, you didn't see very many people looking like me in media, right? skin yeah. people, thin people. So I've always considered myself t- to look bigger than I actually was mm. and didn't feel beautiful for many, many years yeah. as a result of it. For, I think, a, a black woman, um, from our cellular history, we've been vilified and um, been given... A dichotomy of the the black sexualized female because we were brood mares during slave time, and that was not very long ago. No, it wasn't. Um, vilified and as being a person of color because the white, sanctioned, beautiful, idealized female was never a person of color or black. And so for people of color, I think... A big part of it comes from our epigenetic trauma and from our slave ancestry and history. Um, and I think it also uh, comes from how women of color are still perceived in society huge. and our media still. Today. So, today, yeah. right now. Yeah. So, I mean, I think if you're a white person and... It, there's still there's so many struggles, but at least when you're reading a magazine, when you're watching TV, you see a fairly diverse range of what white women can look like. And people of color just don't really have that. So right from the time you're quite young and you're watching TV, even in cartoons, you're reading magazines, whatever kind of media you have access to, 
the representation is so limited for women of color. And not only is it limited, it's stereotyped. And stereotyped, yeah. And stereotyped in a very negative way. And so when you look at yourself in the mirror, not only do you often not feel comfortable in your skin and in your body, you often recognize that society doesn't see you as beautiful or as acceptable, even in shopping. I mean, I, I am not an obese woman. Uh, no. At but all. There's no black mannequins. Well, not only there are no black mannequins, you try and find clothes that are going to fit my booty and my waist. It's very difficult because yeah. I have a very hourglass. And is that because the designers aren't making those or, or there's no money behind it? There's or huge money behind huge, it. There's got to be huge money behind it. It has to do with the identification of race and the normal race being the acceptable race being the white Caucasian race. It doesn't have to do with, I mean, they're the Latin community, the black community, uh, there's huge uh, body differences. And when you're raised where you don't see representations of you on billboards, mm-hmm. in magazines, in TV, it makes it where you all of a sudden become the other mm-hmm. and from a physical form. Right. Place. And so then your idea of beauty changes. We have skin lightening creams, hair straighteners. It's all incredible. these things to chemical make straightening, chemical, chemical straightening of hair, which I have so many questions about people of color hair. Like there that is, would be a whole podcast. That is a whole podcast, and we may have to do that because there is so many questions. I think a good another good point with that too, though, is circling back to media. It's probably been in the last two or three years that I've seen when women of color wearing natural hair. Yeah. So that's a huge thing, right? And yeah. Beautiful. It's a, it's it, is, so it is beautiful. It is beautiful, it is. but it's that's a long, I mean, that's my whole life. That's my mom's fight. whole life looking at people with women of color with straightened yeah. hair, yeah. which very few of us have naturally. So that's a whole thing in itself, too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean... There's a whole, there is a whole podcast in that inherit in itself. I, I, I that is part of it. Yeah. I think there is a whole, whole podcast in, in, mm. in that entire, but even how you're approached or how we, we as a white Caucasian approach people of color oh, is, absolutely. is also a, a completely different thing. I don't have the right to touch anyone else's <laughs> hair. I don't have the right to just automatically, you know. Oh my like there's God. just oh, I can just hear the way you breathe. I know there is so much over there. Like, oh, can I touch your hair? Oh, they don't even ask. Most of the That's time. the worst part about it is, is that there is ask, a- you can say no. But the amount of times people just come up to me and stroke and touch my hair. Like Gross. there's oh, been times when I'm standing cool. ready to get ready to start performing. I'm backstage and this white woman comes up and is touching my hair. And I'm like. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm about to go on stage. Like, Pardon can you me. Not touch me. <laughs> yeah, that, like, that goes back to the whole issue of what black people were ownership and yeah. are. It goes to issue of ownership. The Caucasians feel they have the right to touch my hair because is that part of our genetic history as well? Then is that is that ingrained? In, is it just something that we because we don't recognize it as being uh, because we do it automatically and. Well, so I that, don't know that I do it automatically. Well, I don't no, know no, that a, I do it automatically, but I level of white people, like, yeah, people. like generally Caucasians, white people have the assumption, have the assumption that they can just touch anybody's hair and not not just people of color's hair. I disagree. But I think it's it? very rare that I would see somebody go up and touch Kyle's hair. Well, you know, I was dating a white person that had very curly hair and I couldn't believe how many people assumed to touch her hair. Yeah. 
because it was curly. Yeah, it was, it was curly. The big draw. Exactly. It's, it's curly hair. Like people just want to, and it is lovely to look at and such. But just that uh, assumption. Yeah. Well, just that you can touch anybody at any time for any reason is yeah. a crappy assumption. And so I think ultimately what I'd like to point out is uh, there is a bit of a shift in the way that we see things. And there's way more compassion and love being focused now on mental health and the things that we're now bringing to light in these conversations and why we're even talking about this, and that it's really about being human. It's not about the color or where you live, that we all exist on this globe and we're all breathing the air. And it is about being human, but it, the best way for us to be human is to figure out, ask each other questions. Mm-hmm. I think for for myself, the best way to stay human is to keep asking these questions and and making the mistakes and mm-hmm. and saying stupid shit, which I but <laughs> also I do all just the time. not. Um, sometimes I think that the it gets a little bit lost when we talk about a generalized human experience because people are inherently different. And the struggles that they face and the things that they go through mm-hmm. are different. So, yeah, you know, we are we all are human and that's fundamentally what we are. But our struggles are different. Our realities are different. And a lot of that's based on our sexuality or gender, skin color, whatever. So I don't know. I think it's. Yeah, I think that's important to know because it's easy for somebody to say we're all of the human race. Yeah. I don't see gender, color, sexual orientation. But the fact is, the person who is, well, especially when somebody would say to myself or to Keisha, well, I don't see you as a black person or a person of color. Well, doesn't that seem like a lie? Like that's, well, and like that's a compliment, like because your standard is a white person and so you're basically a white person. So I think. But it feels dishonest and genuine and a lie. But for them, it is. They're trying to say that they're not racist or they're not homophobic or they're not whatever, whatever. category whatever that's a negative, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And so when I hear, doesn't all boil down to us all being human, we're not even close to being there yet. Oh, no, for We've sure. had oh. more cutbacks in mental health services and they continue oh. to be cutbacks. So we are not more um, aware of the resources because there are no resources the government is cutting back resources for all mental health communities, not just the LGBTQ2+. Plus no, community. that's true. It's all, cut social, really. all social, really. All social programming. Programmings. Yeah. So I feel we have made some gains, but we've also gone backwards in a lot of ways. I feel that that's true as well. I, I see that directly happening in Alberta right now. And I think our governments aren't necessarily in line with what I see socially grassroots-wise. And that's what I'm talking about is more inclusion and more conversation. But then if you, but then if you put in your social media, per se, because that's what we're talking about, about if you start putting in spewing hatred or the QAnon or uh, xenophobia, feet, then, so then... That's because that's not what you're this, putting This is my point, right? Right. So, yes, so what you're focusing on is what social media is bringing up for you. Mm-hmm. There's a whole underbelly that you're not seeing in social media because that's not your focus, mm-hmm. right? So I dis- re- disagree respectfully that yeah. what you're seeing on social media indicates what's going on worldwide. And also because on... There's social media, but also the people, I think we talked about this last time as well, the people and community we attract in our lives. Sometimes I'm shocked <laughs> because I've got this really lovely bubble of people. And then <laughs> Me too. I step out of that and I'm like, 
what? <laughs> I'm shocked by how bad things. Like, how are you allowed to say that? Yeah. Like, how, why are you saying like, why, like, why are you saying that? There is a whole, people said that anymore. Like racists have a, an entire social media platform that I do not want to involve myself in at all. I don't want to even, I don't want it near my bubble. But I don't it's, want it. it's about, it's for race. It's for gender. Yes. It's for all of it, right? It is for and all of it. we've created a lovely space for ourselves based on the people we choose to be friends with, the, pe- yeah. the people that we choose to follow, the communities that we choose to follow. But that doesn't, it doesn't represent what is going on in a global scale. At all. At all. At all. I agree. So I, I, yeah. So, and I also think that you know, as we step outside of our bubbles and we, and we're shocked by these things, these are other people's norms. Mm-hmm. I believe I'm inherently hopeful. I believe that there's a lot of hope. I love I do that. See change, mm-hmm. wow. and I purposely turn the mindful perspective to the hopeful perspective, mm-hmm. and that's the way I view the world. So I yeah. do see those things. So for every sanctioning against the LGBTQ2 plus community, against people of color, against Black people. I also see beautiful moments of humanity. Yes. And, th- and those moments of humanity are the ones that build my hopefulness. Coming up as a gay man in the last 30, 40 years, we've seen the changes. We've seen what we've been Good able to changes. do. Beautiful and changes. Beautiful changes. And, and the kids react very differently. The young LGBTQ2 spirited people are act, react very differently. And it's beautiful. And a little frightening for me to watch because... I kind of fear what they're they're doing to themselves in some way because well, they forgot about you the struggle. From, you come from the the genetic reality of of not being able to be a, a gay person or a queer person because you would be killed. Yeah, like you would be dragged behind trucks. You would be tied to a fence post like, and left for dead. Like, yeah. and we in our age group, yours and mine, we have very concrete memories of that. Oh yes. Um, so for when I look at where we're at now in terms of the LGBTQ plus community, I see beautiful change. I'm not oh, saying yeah. that there is a huge amount that still needs to be done and that there still isn't horrendous problematic behaviors, ideologies, systemic abuses that are happening. But I, I can see the forward movement. When I look at past the last 40 years. I'd like to kind of circle back to... The people of color and how, oh, I have a black friend and I, you know, that whole, that whole, okay. The token black friend, the token gay friend. But how do we approach that? Because as a white man, I walk through the world thinking, I don't know how not to be racist. I don't want to be racist. You learn. Uh, You learn. And you, but the only way to learn is to ask. And the only way to ask is to break that barrier. And how do you, how do you want to be approached? Like, how do I approach that? This is a good question because I personally believe that asking somebody of said community is a really strong way to get an an authentic answer. Yes, I want an authentic answer. So, a couple things to be understanding of is one, people of color do not feel the same way about everything. So, Right. <laughs> okay. Let's break so, that out a little bit more so that it's broad and what you yeah, mean by that. So if I feel, you know, if Jennifer and I feel one way about something, there may be a person of color who experiences that completely differently and would have a completely different answer for you. Same with you being a lesbian as well. Lesbian, gay, gay, any of it. Any of it. That's why yeah. having your token whatever friend doesn't work because they're, 
you know, their experience could be completely different from. And they don't have the card that gives permission for everyone. That's right. right. So that's something to be mindful of just on a, you know, whole level here. The next thing is being mindful of people's emotional labor and that they're giving this to you for free. So for me, what I'll often do if I'm asking for insight on a specific issue, depending on who it is. So, you know, if I have a question specifically for a trans person, I'll say, okay, I have a question. I'm wondering if you're in a place that you're able to answer or wanting to answer, where are you at? And then they have full kind of ability to say, you know what, I'm exhausted. I've been answering these questions all day, not interested. And not only that, I think the reason why it's problematic in Canada especially is because we do not like to think of race as an issue in Canada. Yeah, I'm just talking about how to approach somebody with questions, though, is what we're talking about, right? Yes. Well, this is what I'm this is, I, I'm, ah, okay. I'm adding to that, yeah. So what happens is, is when, when somebody gets triggered, like a white person or a person of color gets triggered, and they're trying to find a way of making the discussion – it becomes more difficult for you because we have this idea in Canada that we don't have an issue of color and that black people are not uh, systemically attacked, have prejudices. So it takes great courage. And even just by asking it opens up a door, even just by being open to say, hey, I, I might not know. Or if a black person calls you on something yeah. or says, oh, that's not... To, to own that white fragility, to own that place of discomfort. Right, fragility is the next thing. But just back is asking if they're in a in a place where they want to or can give you the answers. Can deal with it. That's a, the But the, the other thing, thing, too, is before you even go to one of those marginalized communities, do you need research. to do your own research. Your research. So if you're That's... wondering if what you're saying is racist, Google it. Do Google Scholar. Do whatever you need to do. Once you've got that information, if you're still confused, if you're not sure, if you, you know, you have all of these, you feel something's really biased, you feel that there's conflicting, whatever, then you can go to somebody and say, okay, again, you ask when they give you, yes, I'm willing to answer. Then you say, okay, this is the work I've done. This is where it's led me. Do you have more insight? Here's what I'm confused about. Right. Because now you're showing that that person that, you're doing some work. Care. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. not, and you're not just trying to check off your list of being the right ally. You've actually done your work. Right. Because and we're always asked to educate and to teach. All marginalized people yeah. are. We, yeah. We all marginalized people are asked to educate. But also yeah. visible right? marginalized people, yeah. visible minorities are asked more. Yes. Because you can identify them by looking at them. We also do feel white fragility and that's something as well. That was the white shame. One. So then when I tell you, there's two ways this is going to go normally. You come to me, you say, can I ask you this? Sure. Then you ask me. And depending on my mood, I might give you honey and kindness in my answer, even if you're being what I perceive as really offensive. Or I might be snappy and tired of it. <laughs> and it's your job as the ally to take all of that information and use it as uh, positive, even if you don't feel that I'm being for your next yeah. encounter or and for your next just to not, hear hear the criticism that yeah, I'm saying, and not like, defend, yeah, and not mm-hmm. get right. defensive or angry, which dismissive, is, which dismissive. is so hard for all of us to yes. do, oh, is yeah. to to un, to to completely alleviate the, our own ego in a way where it's like, okay, this person is exhausted, and that's where this is coming from. Mm. So shut up, take it, make an apology, and get. 
to learn what they're trying to actually say. And if you, if I, if I am short with you and I see that you're receptive and you're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to do better. Probably next time you ask me, I won't be so, so snappy. <laughs> like you're probably yeah. testing my grounds a little bit, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's a good give and take. But I think everybody who's not a part of whatever community, your automatic is going to be defensive. Yeah. So you need to kind of reel that back and think, okay, how can I actually be productive in this conversation? Yeah, but I, I think um, Caucasian people are so defensive because there's, I mean, we live on a colonized land, right? So there's this That's whole yep. racial structuring going on. There's a reason why the British Empire, the son of a son of the British Empire, is because they took all the lands, all the rights, everything. And so what happens is a person of color, a black person, is trying to educate, but they've also got their epigenetic trauma. Mm -hmm. They've also got their, their history of abuse and, and subtle abuse and overt abuse. And so when they respond, so often it triggers the white fragility in the Caucasian people that they're talking to. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes an unnecessary battle and conflict and conflict to learn. And the, I think too, right. with that white people are, when they think that they're doing their work, they're really upset when somebody's telling them they're not doing good enough <laughs> or that they need to do. Well, better. I think that's with anybody, like when no, we're all it's trying, it's different with privileged people because well, that, yeah, it just I'm, is, yeah. it's just different because, and, and I think the, sorry, Oh, go ahead. I think the reason why it's different is because it's so vastly uncomfortable to recognize that all of the privileged people's gains come on the backs of blood and death and sweat and objectification of body types and of violence and of slavery and of, 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 of. Well, and of our own epi uh, epigenetic, epigenetic uh, because, history as well. Because most... So. I mean, the truth be told. Always the truth be told. <laughs> <laughs> uh, part of your epigenetic history, part of your epigenetic history, part of my epigenetic history is a, a slave owner. Mine too. Yeah. Yes. We're right? Mixed. Yeah. Right? Because we're, we're mixed color. You're right? mixed. Yeah. Mixed we're, we're, and, we're both black and white. So that's a whole complicated thing. Exactly. Right. We've got all of those. We but have I, light skin. Like we have privileges of ourself and our epigenetic history is complicated because of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm never seen as... Somebody who's half white. I'm always seen as black, mm -hmm. or half or black. half black. Always so, something black. Yeah. Can I, I would. I'm very curious. I my background is uh, epigenetic, like Swedish, and I see some of that. And I'm like, <gasps> but now in this state, right now, today, I as a white person want to do better, and I know that I err often and make mistakes. And so, for people that do have white fragility or white shame. What would you suggest are the best ways to be bungling through this so that it's not... There's a great book called White Fragility. Read the book. Read Do we know the author? Uh, I if can, we can get the author, let's... It. Just so that we can get... And I speak yeah. of this, this in my own experience with Keisha and mm -hmm. Jennifer, as I've known them for some time, and I know I've bungled through and stuck my foot in my mouth multiple times, and they've been very <laughs> gracious with me, and I'm still willing to try. I did it last podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> I I, I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning. And there are things, and I am, I'm, I'm trying to work on those, and I'm the only way I'm ever going to learn. And Keisha, we're getting to know each other, and you and I have no problem learning. And, and that's great. That's the only way that, that, that we can continue. That's why these conversations are so important. I think just coming back to if you're wanting to learn and ask the questions, you really have to be ready to hear something you don't want to hear. 
Right. You hear it in a way that you don't necessarily feel comfortable right. hearing it. That is kind of, that is the whole story. It's great that you want to learn, but how far, like, how far are you willing to push your comfort in order to get the- So the book is White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. It's a, a seminal book. It's excellent. Excellent author. By Robin D'Angelico. D'Angelo. Sorry. Robin D'Angelo. <laughs> Robin D'Angelo. Okay. Yeah. Um, awesome. And it's, and it's written by a white person. And I, it's pretty easy to read, too. It's an easy read. Yeah, yeah but that's not, good. I mean, it's not like, yeah, too it, clinical. It's not, it's not clinical at all. Um, okay. But it, it, it's based on a lot of clinical facts. I know um, Keisha has a uh, speaking group that I've been to, and it was after that group that I went and watched 13, and I went and watched the Black Panthers, the bio on it, and uh, Ella Fitzgerald, and. Yeah, so learning. You know, like just seeing the bios of these people, and it's so horrific. Mm-hmm. See, it's still happening. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is going on? Yeah. But it, I wouldn't have got to see those had I not had such exchanges with these people myself. One of the songs that really hit me so hard as I was coming up and as I was growing up, I, uh, I heard Strange Fruit for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it horrified me because it was at Matthew, the time when Matthew Shepard was being tied to a fence. And it was the first time I'd ever heard Strange Fruit. And the way that um, I related to that song made it very, mm, made it very real. Mm-hmm. Like that sort of behavior makes it very real because we're the new Strange Fruit and we haven't even dealt with the, the sorry. I'm, it's okay. Uh yeah, we hear you. It's tough you're, because you're the, you can, you're the new strange fruit and the healing and the acknowledgement of the original strange fruit has, not been has never been dealt with. And we're still dealing with that. And yet we're allowing this to happen again. Oh, so it, that that was very it, it's a very emotional. It is really emotional. You know, yeah. and, it, and these these topics are so hard to to get past. But if we don't start talking about them, if we don't start breaking through these these barriers of politeness then we're never going to learn we're never going to be find this humanity so each segment of the lgbtq community that we that we look at has their own struggles bisexuals pansexuals there is a completely different model there as well uh peg's unfortunately not with us today to to speak to that but jennifer you are and i just want to ask is there a variance or do you feel pushed and pulled from all the segments of society in that way. Well, I think pushed and pulled from all segments, and also the idea of, of blood shaming being a slut because you don't identify with one type of orientation or gender. And I think that's a really huge part of it. Huge, huge part, huge part of, it. of it for my personal experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is compounded by me being black. In my younger years, you got slut shamed a lot. A huge amount. Slut shaming. Black on top of it, because black women already are automatically seen as a a different type of sexuality, a different sexual draw. People have a lot of uh, very pathological fantasies about being with a black woman and what that means and what that looks like. So the combination of two made it sometimes where I was consistently objectified in a very negative way. 
um, from from all levels of society to the point where I was so internalized I didn't even realize it was happening. Right. The big booty, the big breasts, and the big lips with the itty bitty frame with the white that's a, features. That's a black. It's an it's an ownership of black bodies exactly. and saying I want to take these. Can we say that though? Things. I want to take these specific things from what black women look like, but also put it with a European beauty standard. And that is why it is so tough to be a woman of color right now, because you're only you're supposed to have a big booty, but it has to be round and you're supposed to have big breasts, but they have to be round and you have to have an itty bitty waist and you have to have white features in your face. But but Dolly Parton has those things, too. And that's like, is that an cultural appropriation like is that or is that just her body's the type is that way or well, there's an issue some body types are that way regardless of color regardless of color, regardless color. Of color yes. okay but the appropriation of the buttocks and the breasts and the lips lips totally. especially the lips right the plumping are yeah. are complete about trying to take the pieces of black culture that and, are and form physically form and beautiful and put them into a white eurocentric body as a way of morphing that beauty standard for all of us like for well it's a beauty standard it looks beautiful on them but then it takes it it's still not accepted in the black form yeah oh right okay so that's why i I see yeah okay Right. Okay. So that's that's the differential. Yes. Can you explain what epigenetics? Please, because it's really so. So epigenetics is the cellular memories. We have been able to track your genetic epigenetic memories, trauma, and resiliency, um, the way you view the world, back so far to your great great grandparents. So that is the cellular history that keeps us alive. So cellular memory. Uh, Cellular memory, but. Ancestral cellular memory. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not just your cellular memory of what you've learned. Of humanities. And of humanities learned. and of the global. It's it's the your direct. specific direct ancestral memory. For example, for me, I never understood like the first time I <laughs> the first time I heard a bloodhound bark, I was walking into like a, a parking lot and they did that that bark, that hound bark, that howly yeah, bark. Yeah, like the And I froze i got sweat popping out of me i was shaking that there was no reason for it as an individual individual, had that experience but my great-grandmother was the first person freed in my family on my dad's side Uh, so that was truly like an epigenetic memory for me right it's amazing you know right because the bloodhound wouldn't make me react that way except for maybe Wanting to feed it the thing, like and, it, and it wasn't thing. It wasn't like doing an attack sound or whatnot. It was just like so. That, that was that's a, a really good example. That is a really good that's example. Epigenetics, and that happens with trauma, but yeah. as you say, with resiliency. Because it, so the trauma is the ones that we've been studying, right? So the trauma goes through us, through to our children, to our children's children, to our children's children, children. But if the trauma is going through resiliency and strength and the warrior self and the kind self have to be going through as well. Right. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. That's, I feel it's that way actually, about fire sometimes. I, I think that epigenetics, uh, white people would benefit greatly from doing research on epigenetics right. because it shines a lot of light onto people's triggers, onto indigenous people, black people, people of color, onto their triggers and their uh, tolerance do we have any reference material for that that we can put on the website so that people can actually link can, to that? I can find some. Oh, yeah, great, if you give me that. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Awesome. Nice. Thank you. We reside in the beautiful Okanagan Valley and are privileged to support the LGBTQ2S plus programs and events in this area. 
Thank you.